Hello and welcome back to the conversation here at TRSI, the right side. I am really happy and delighted and excited uh, to, be to be talking to Professor Georgia McCluskey, um, who is Professor Emerita of, at the University of Illinois at Chicago of Economics, Professor Emerita of History, Professor Emerita of Communications, Professor Emerita, I think, of English, uh, adjunct professor of philosophy. Yes, um, it's just, it's fantastic and it's wonderful. And we want to talk today, the broad headline is wealth. What is the core? What is the source? What is the origin of wealth? Is it a zero-sum game? Is it about exploitation? Is it about theft? Or is it about something rather different? So, yeah. Professor, thank you for coming, Professor McCloskey. Great to have thank you here. You. So, you've been hearing, I'm sure, a lot of talk and in these interesting times that we live in, that in the West, the Western world has become wealthy, waxed wealthy, on the basis of empire, slavery, exploitation. Yeah. And that's how we got rich. Yeah. This is the nature of capitalism. Now, the first thing I want to just to bring, for many years now, it's, I'm kind of, resentful of using the word capitalism because it seems to me it brings with it a set of presumptions and associations that are from Marx about the nature of wealth creation and I and I don't like to use it because I think in a sense we're conceding the language and if you concede the language you kind of lose the game. Am I being a crank? No, you certainly are and in fact I, I've made the same, I've had the same feeling for a long time. I've finally gotten a substitute word and I want you, you you and everyone else to start start using it. Innovism, uh, a sort of more elaborate version of the same thing is commercially tested um, betterment, improvement. Um, but innovism is what actually happened in the last couple of centuries. And the problem with capitalism, which by the way, well, is that it, it implies in the very word, and I've I've seen people do this, and it's not their fault. It's just the word that sort of makes their mind go in this direction. It makes you think that the accumulation of capital is the heart of the modern world, that the accumulation of capital is what made us rich. And that's not so. Now, I have to admit that my hero, the sainted um, Adam Smith, <laughs> was the one who started this hair of accumulation because he was thinking of, of Scotland as being impoverished compared with the, the Paragon at the time, which was Holland. And you look at Holland and you look at the highlands of Scotland especially, the highlands don't have any roads and it's a terrible mess. Let's make roads and houses and machines and then we'll be rich. And that idea has, has persisted in, in economics and, and then in um, most people's thinking about the economy right up to the present. And economists understand investment and capital accumulation very well. And so we keep trying to lay <laughs> the world down on this Procrustean bed of capital accumulation. And as uh, the hero of my youth, John Maynard Keynes said, however, if you don't have innovation within a generation or so, the investments you make 
are exhausted in the sense that there's diminishing returns to putting up another copy of your house <laughs> or another car. How many cars do you own before you reach diminishing returns? <laughs> the average American has something like two and a half cars. Well, maybe that's it. Um, so sheer capital accumulation is not where it's at. And then, of course, sheer capital accumulation suggests that, well, if we could just take the capital away from this group of people and give it to another, then that would enrich the, the second group. And, and so behind that is a notion of a zero-sum world. Is that something, is that what Thomas Piketty is a, a little bit about? Very much about. Um, he's, uh, he's entirely about this accumulation idea, except, and I've done a long review, 50 pages, no less, on his first book. I have his, uh, his second book right here. Here it is. Uh, you can hold, with his two books, you can hold open two doors. <laughs> They're useful. Very useful, but I can't complain because I do these days. I do long books too, but he, he um, his, he's he's in many ways an admirable thinker, um, hard working and and, uh, and serious. So I, I don't. I'm not saying he's a charlatan or a bad man or something, but he does make really quite significant mistakes of an economic analytic sort. For example, he ignores human capital skills, uh, which is poor, more or less disastrous for his argument. He even ignores uh, um, government capital, which is quite strange. That's on the sort of technical side, but then on the philosophical side and the ethical side, he, he doesn't see that um, some, a lot of inequalities are because someone is a is a better football player or Irish for football <laughs> than you are, and yeah. therefore makes makes more makes more makes more money, and that's good because it signals that the the economy people who watch football want more of that kind of person. Okay, it so. We 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 take one principle is we we'll take as established first that we contest shall we say the idea that simply the accumulate the, the accumulation of capital is the way to go. Now yeah, there's we, another we, idea I think I'd like to throw at you that we need to unpack that it's included in this. There's a, a famous quote from a, a great man Nelson Mandela, which mm -hmm. in which he says poverty is not natural. Yeah, well. He's wrong, although I admire Nelson Mandela extravagantly. Here's a man who spent 27 years in a cell on Robben Island and emerged without rancor. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's some kind of saint. Uh, that's, that's my kind of saint. Sure. Um, and, but... But historically, is it not the case that in fact... Uh, it's completely natural, <laughs> but it, but it, it's, 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 I, I, you know, I kind of, if, if you were here, I could, we could have a longer discussion and maybe I, I could, we could come to some sort of agreement because 
I would say that freeing people is what made us rich. Mm-hmm. It's liberty that made us rich. And if Nelson Mandela stood for anything, it was for, for freedom, even though he was a, he was a socialist. Um, so, and, and so in that sense, <laughs> releasing people from the hierarchies that come with an agricultural society, which had persisted for 4,000 years, four or 5,000 years, um, made for innovation. People could have a go. Um, and, and then they had a go. They went to an extraordinary degree. Whereas in a, in a hierarchical society, which is more or less how agricultural societies work, um, if you start as a milkmaid, you stay as a milkmaid. And you don't even want to invent a milking machine, so to speak. But it is true that before the revolution, industrial revolution, oh, yeah. before yeah. all that, people did create wealth. I mean, that movement from, if we look back to the, say, sure. I don't know, to the time of the Roman Empire. Sure. Rome, India. I mean, I, 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 I've seen graphs which suggest that over yeah. the, the, the arc of human history, it's really only a very brief time where Europe is the rich bit. Most of yeah. human history, the richest places in the world are either India or China. Sure, and true. we see this huge history of wealth, yeah. which is created in India, in China, different times yeah, in yeah. Asia. Yeah, but it, but how it, constant it, is that level of wealth? Most innovations came from China. The blast furnace, which we once thought was a European, especially Scandinavian invention, no, it was invented in China. Mm-hmm. And one thing after another, almost the only thing that the, that the Europeans invented were eyeglasses. Very important. And then that led on to telescopes and microscopes. But in glass technology, the Europeans were good. But in everything else, um, the East, especially the Far East, and, and to some degree, um, the, the, the Indian subcontinent, which, for example, invented place value for, for numbers. Yes. Invented only in two places in the world, India, and uh, and Central America, but it was slow, and so you so what you get is let's say three hundred thousand BCE is over here, and the present is here, and you get this you know they're bumping along hunter gatherers, hunter gatherers, hunter gatherers, hunter gatherers at one or two dollars a day in modern terms. Imagine living in in in, in Dublin or New York on $2 a day, and there you are, and then you get agriculture way over here, or no, about here maybe, <laughs> and not much happens because of Malthus, because once you can grow crops reliably, population expands, mm-hmm. and that takes away the advantage, and then you get to, I don't know, 800 um, CE, and then it goes... <laughs> It goes up by a factor of 30. Really? 20. So that's eight, 800 years before Christ in the common era? No, not 800 years before Christ. 1800. 1800, okay. 1800. No, 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 not 1800. 1800. Sorry, sorry, no. okay. So although, we're talking. Although, in, in speaking of 800 years before Christ, the invention of uh, the wheat, oil, and um, uh, and olive, uh, wine 
economy of the Eastern Mediterranean may have and very plausibly doubled income. Go ahead. Well, you're talking about but, 30. But that's only 100%. We're talking about 3,000%. Sure. 3,000. 3, so can, we, can, you, can you put a, a, some, a marker for that? Is Egypt on the map Yes. Are the Egyptians no, there? It's fact, in the, although we, we, there, there are all kinds of myths about ancient Egypt that we got, like the uh, people who built the pyramids were slaves. They probably weren't. They were hired uh, uh, labor. But yes, of course, Egypt with its regular flooding and its crops, very rich crops in the soil, uh, could sustain a large population, which is why Egypt had such a... a civilization for so long, but the average Joe or the average, I don't know what you call it in Egypt, the average person was uh, still extremely poor. Mm -hmm. $2 a day, $3 a day, that's it. And now the average person in Ireland or the United States is earning upwards of $120 a day, mm -hmm. earning and spending. Now that's between two or three and 120. That's this at the end here, this amazing rise at the end. So and that's what we need to explain. We have this incredible, we have this 3,000% moment, 3,000%, a factor of 30. I, 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 I spoke on this subject about a year and a half ago at the uh, Cambridge Department of Cultural Anthropology in England. And uh, a very famous anthropologist got up and said, well, you know, I agree with your figure of a factor of 30, but 3,000% is too high. <laughs> and I, I didn't say to him, go back to your fourth form <laughs> arithmetic, but still, a factor of 30. And, and it's not hard to convince yourself of this. If you think of how the average uh, Irish, French, or Japanese Finnish person lived in 1800. Uh, he was desperately poor. Uh, um, so how long? How long before the next really big move? Are we looking at a fairly stable picture? Say no. It's, it's still growing. It's still. It's not growing at the rates it did in some countries uh, like Sweden in the late 19th century. But I, I mean, in this in this period, say for the next 2,000 years after 1800. Yeah. Then we come to after say after Christ to that period then in the mid Catholic antiquity and starting from now two thousand years in the future or what would happen you mean since since zero and two thousand what happened so if we take this moment where you have this three thousand percent increase yeah that's at the very end the very end it's it's the last it's it's since eighteen hundred since eighteen hundred yeah right. since eighteen hundred no no it's not since Rome. It's because, not, and as I said, nothing much happens in the Middle Ages, which I've, uh, I've studied to some degree, uh, agricultural history especially. You know, the, the yield of seed in wheat in the Middle Ages was about four. If you put one grain into the earth, you got four back. Right. And that's pathetic. Now it's, it's 50 or 60 or 80. Um, so this is, they were, it's precarious. They had uh, serious famines every seven or 10 years. So say say we, we, we come into the, the, sort of the late medieval period. Yeah. And we're in Italy, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And we say so the Italian city states have started to come yeah, on board. Right. So Milan, uh, Florence, Siena, Genoa. Do you see a kind of a proto-capitalism, proto? Sure. sure but, there? Yeah, but it, but it, and there's innovation. For example, they invented the washing machine. <laughs> this was for cloth production to pre-shrink the cloth and to make it have various qualities. They invented, the, the, the Florentines invented washing machines. Well, okay. And there were in Spain at the time, as we know from Don Quixote, they had introduced uh, windmills from the Arab world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there was innovation going on, but still they were poor. Right. I mean, really, really poor. The kind of uh, poverty that you now see in Somalia was characteristic even of the Italian Renaissance. But could we say that maybe that what they're doing is they're laying down a series of what are going to be necessary steps? No. They're not sufficient, no. but they're, they're requirements for what happens later? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think the brief, as we'll see in a couple of centuries, the brief um, domination by people with, with our kind of skin, with, with white skin, hmm. um, is, uh, I, I don't think it's deep in European history. Now, there, there's, there are very economic historians who I, I think highly of who think you don't agree with me, but still. I think it was uh, up until, say, 1700, and certainly up until 1600, up until the time of, of Shakespeare, mm -hmm. there's no big case for the superiority of Western Europe or Northwestern Europe, to be more specific, over any other part of the world. And a few centuries later, Marco Polo goes to uh, China and is stunned by, uh, the, uh, um, by, by what he finds there. Um, Europe had a, a chronic balance of payments, problem with the East, really, up until late in the 19th century, in fact, but because the East didn't like anything that the Europeans made because they were so crude, mm -hmm. whereas silks and, and porcelain from the East were in, uh, in big demand in Europe. So it's very late that we, white people, get the advantage. And it, it happens, um, with shocking speed, really, in the 18th century and especially then in the 19th. Well, that means that you're put, you're, this is happening after, shall we say, the period of conquest. This yeah. is after the yeah. discovery of the, the, the yeah, discovery that's right. of Columbus. That's right. And after it's, it's, the Spanish conquest. Exactly. And, and, and the Spanish, and, and, and first the Portuguese and the Spanish, are a very good case in point. Because if it were true, that conquest was the big thing. Oh boy! Once they, once you conquer, I don't know Angola or something, then you grow rich. <laughs> Portugal and Spain are examples that is not so. Um, but in what happens? What happens to Spain? I mean, Spain is this under Philip the time of Philip II. It's, yeah, a, yeah. it's the leading power in in yeah, Europe. Yeah. It's the richest. It's the richest country. It's the most powerful. And this flood of gold and silver is coming into Spain. 
and and, ever, so, and after that, it just seems to get poorer and poorer and poorer. What they do is what they do is they they don't develop their industry or their educational system internally. They don't invent anything. They just spend it on war. They, in fact, in the 16th century, the the uh, the uh, Spanish monarchy went bankrupt. I think at least two times bankrupt. Mm. They couldn't pay their debts to the to the Italian and German um, financiers of their armies, even though, as you said, gold and especially silver was pouring into into um, into Spain. In fact, in line with that that business about the balance of payments, all the gold and silver that came from the New World ended up indirectly in East Asia and South Asia. Because those are the places where that's how they solved the balance of trade problem in, in Europe. They sent their specie, we call it, gold and silver, east. So yeah, it, it evidently affected it, it, it. There was an inflation, not tremendously large. We had a much larger one in the 1980s worldwide, but there was inflation. Um, money prices went up. Yeah. No, nothing much happened. There's a, I think a Spanish priest called, uh, if I can get his name, Azil, Az, Az, Azpil Cueta. He was in Coimbra. He's one of the connected to the Salamanca school that period. Oh, I love Salamanca. And he I made, was there. He, he, I, I lectured really? in the hall that the school of Salamanca lectured in. Wow. Well, he's, I love it. <laughs> he made the comment that all this gold goes from Spain and it ends up in Manila where, yeah, they, right. where they paved the roads with the granite the Chinese brought in as ballast in their ships. <laughs> I'm not terribly surprised, but it ended up in the East anyway. So, so it's really not until, let's take a symbolic date, 1776, which is chiefly important because of the publication of Adam Smith's mm -hmm. the, a Treatise on the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. And then incidentally, there was this uh, American revolution going on. The, the unpleasantness. <laughs> the unpleasantness, the late unpleasantness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it, it's very late and, it, and here's the key point. We, we start getting innovation what I call innovism, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you can think of as the kind of ideology of allowing people to try out stuff in with liberalism, the beginnings mm -hmm. of it. Now, no one would claim that England, say, in 1800 was a thoroughly liberal polity or society, but it was more so than Spain at the time. And so it, um, so it grew because what, what happened, what, and I've argued this in, in some detail, what happened is that ordinary people were freed to try out stuff or to move, to move. I mean, my ancestors, uh, I'm some sort of uh, cousin of yours because I'm half Irish. And my Irish ancestors, my Norwegian and English ancestors could move in a way that was very hard to do a couple of centuries before. Okay. And that's innovation too. But 
innovation at Shuri is, is important, but you've already made the point that in China, the Chinese have been masters of innovation. They have. But yeah. they, they, don't, they don't make this huge leap. They, this, it's because they don't keep it up. In the Song Dynasty, which is in the early, is in 1000 or 1100, um, and China is this dynamic place that eventually Ma, Ma, Marco Polo could see a couple of centuries later. Um, and they're inventing all kinds of stuff. They had, uh, I mean, I, they were using, hear this, this is quite remarkable. They were using natural gas for illumination in the, what, in the European Middle Ages. Wow. Uh, uh, and, and on and on. Um, and we've only recently discovered this. It's been only in the last 30 or 40 years that people have realized that it was not Europe that was the innovative place up until 1700 or so. It was the Far East, especially. But it, nonetheless, it was slow. But isn't it also true that what happened in China, at least a lot of the time, was they would discover, make a discovery. And then they would forget about it. And then they would no. rediscover it and rediscover it. That for some no, reason... That, that's what Mao said, uh, uh, famously. He said, oh, yes, uh, we invented gunpowder, gun then we just used it for, um, for, uh, for firecrackers. Fire. We invented the compass, but then we didn't go anywhere, and so on and so forth. And, and none of that is true. Um, the, Guns were invented by the Chinese, mm. and they would shoot them at the Turks, and then the Turks learned because you had had better Flemings shooting a cannon at you. Mm. They learned, and then we, if we keep talking in this way of sure. white people, we learned it from the Turks. But so okay, say, take. I'm told, in so far as I, I read in a book once that, for example, uh, the Chinese, I think in the 15th century, had. The this huge navy yeah. of massive open-going junks that went Perfectly all the way to Africa. Africa, all the way to Africa, go over to California, perhaps, and an emperor came well, came not along. To California, I don't think, but to Africa for sure. And they what I say potentially, notionally, they could have. It was the idea, I suppose. They and then the emperor comes along and says, "No, we're not. We're getting rid of all this." I know, and that, that was the problem. And and and, and one can one one, one can tell a story this way. China and Northern India and the Ottoman Empire and Japan, all four of them, which were potentially places where the modern world, what I call the Great Enrichment, could have happened. All four of them were centralized. Mm -hmm. They were large empires. And at least, you know, the, the smallest was Japan, but the entire uh, um, all the islands were, were under one person, um, uh, under the shogun. So, so, and whereas Europe, which was a backwater, in, in you know, to consider the reaction of the Franks, as they call themselves, when they went on crusade, they were stunned by the advanced character of uh, Arab culture. Mm. Quite properly, because in 11, 12, 1300, Europe was, was a backwater and was learning from the Arabs. Um, but it was fragmented. 
uh, there's this old point that what we call Germany was split by even as late as uh, 1700 and maybe even by 1800 into hundreds of political units, hundreds. There was the Holy Roman Empire, neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but, but, but it, 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 was, uh, it was not a unified polity. Now, of course, people kept trying to make it unified. Charlemagne, 800, uh, uh, um, the, the popes, the medieval popes, no, no, we're, we're the ones, we're going to make it all unified. Uh, Barbarossa, uh, Frederick II. Barbarossa, um, Napoleon, uh, Hitler, they all kept trying yeah, it, to make it. It doesn't have a great history, maybe, as the time, time goes on, it starts to become a kind right. of discredited and so, idea. And so, and so, you couldn't stop innovation. You couldn't turn it off, whereas there are shocking cases of turning off innovation. Three, in the Ottoman Empire, the first book in Turkish to be printed was two and a half centuries after the printing press was invented haha, in Germany. Actually, this is a case in point, the printing press was invented in China 400 years before Gutenberg, more like 500. Do we have books? Type? Yep, we have books, absolutely. We have books from the, uh, for, from the year 1000 in large quantities from China. But okay, then people say, oh, it's invented in Germany. Okay, but the, but, but the Ottomans knew about it. They let the Jews publish anything they wanted because it was in, in, uh, in, in either uh, uh, Hebrew or more commonly in Ladino. Uh, the, he, he, the, the Portuguese type language that they had. The Sephardic. This, yeah, the Sephardic version of Yiddish, we'll say. Exactly. And, and so the first book published in Turkish was in 1740. Wow. But they were publishing in Persian before that, were they? And the first what? What's that? They What's published that? in Persian before that. I'm sure they did, because they, 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 they allowed, that is, the Ottoman, that uh, Persian was not part of the Ottoman Empire. That was a... That was a, but it was the it was the prestige language. It was the language of it court. Was, it court. was the prestige language also in the in the in the north of India for a long time. So the, it was a political decision. The, the first book published in Arabic, not Persian, but Arabic, and obviously in Arabic script. All of these was not until the early nineteenth century. Wow! In Japan, the the Tokugawa shogunate famously outlawed the gun, right? Because they mm. wanted to have the monopoly of this. But they also outlawed, outlawed the wheel. The wheel. The wheel, wheel. The wheel was outlawed. Wow. Those famous um, views of urban scenes in the late 18th and early 19th century, these marvelous uh, prints. You'll see urban scenes and you'll see lots of people go in. It's extremely commercial. They had markets and everything, but you'll never see a wheeled vehicle. Sorry, no, I have to stop here. Rewind. Are you telling me that they <laughs> successfully introduced that in 1780 in Edo yeah. or Kyoto or wherever? There no are no wheels. No wheels. There are no wagons. No wagons. They, the only people allowed to have wheels were the, um, 
were the were 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 the daimyo, the lords, but they only used them to go from their country estates to Edo, which was modern uh, uh, um, uh, um, Tokyo. Every what is it? Every two years or something? I forget the time. They would have to go there. It was like Versailles. You, you bring all the nobles in so that you can watch them. Right. But, but and then, then the same thing happened in China, as you point out. They had the best ships in the world in 1400 or 1500, junks. They were vastly superior to anything the poor Portuguese had. And yet they didn't, they, they, and then they had this amazing ex, um, um, admiral uh, uh, who went to Africa. Mm-hmm. They find Chinese porcelain in what's now Zimbabwe. And that's where it comes from. And gold, which they got from Zimbabwe, they brought back to China. But look, then this unified polity said, oh no, we're not gonna do any of that. Just okay. as the Japanese had outlawed foreign trade under the, uh, uh, under the Tokugawa. So it's one after another of these polities. I'm a little bit uncertain about the, uh, about the, no, Northern India. That I'm not. I don't know enough about India to be sure. Okay, and listen. I'll, I'll, I'll put this to you then. If we're talking about innovation, innovation, invention, I'll, I'll say. I'll. I'll. Uh, I'll say. I'll, this is my polemic for my attack. <laughs> my attack is this. Okay, they're great at inventing all these things. Europeans are not so good at inventing things, and we're there. However, Europeans do invent one thing, and that is actually the source of the wealth of the Western world. They invent the individual. I'm quoting, I'm going back to Larry Seedentop's great book, Inventing the Individual. Now that doesn't come from a European idea. It comes from ultimately from Christianity. And the notion, liberalism cannot happen absent uh, that, under, that, that underpinning, that, under, that, that St. Paul gives, in St. Paul Seedentop says, invents the idea both of the individual and the yeah. free will. No, no, no. I, 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 I don't think so. For for one thing, the notion of free will is ancient in um, uh, in uh, Jewish and Zoroastrian and so forth. All these these uh, Middle Eastern religions, and and indeed, it's it's implied in Hinduism and Buddhism as well. But Christianity and Paul do something, they're radical in their, this is the first radically universalist view of both of them, and of, that we abs- he abstracts the person from the community, and it's the individual. And the individ- without that liberalism, liberalism is, is this, this European expression. Well, if it were true, if, if this argument, which I've heard a lot, were true, then it's, it's puzzling that it's not the Roman Empire that gets the great enrichment. Or for that matter, Charlemagne's empire, or not, empire or not. Why didn't, uh, in the time of St. Thomas, uh, the blessed St. Thomas Aquinas, why didn't uh, there wasn't, why because wasn't there? Because the material there? circumstances were not propitious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, because but the, it, the necessary, but not the necessary conditions that were contingent. I, I'm trying to think of my marks here. Help me out. The, no, I, I, were, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think the, the conditions for economic growth, um, had you had freedom. See, what I would claim is that it's the new birth of freedom in the 18th century, this crazy theory 
that all men and women here are created equal. This was penned, as you know, by a man who owned a hundred slaves. Indeed. So you know, it's a little bit not <laughs> it's too practical, but but that idea is utterly novel. It's look, Martin Luther spoke of the priesthood of all believers, but in uh, in 1525, there was a peasant revolt in Germany, inspired by his ideas. Oh well, if we're if we're all priests, we don't need lords, we don't need anyone. And of course, Martin Luther was appalled by this. He didn't want them to, people to be equal in society. No, no, mow them down like dogs. That's what he said. That's right, mow them down like dogs. And and so it went. I mean, the, it's only the radical. Reformation. Oh, okay, hold on. Radical the, being the English Quakers in, in the 1640s. The medievalists, the medieval theologians will say sovereignty resides in the people. The people yeah. don't have the right to govern, but sovereignty resides in, in the in, in the in the yeah, but, but as you well know, that was not James the first of England, James the sixth of Scotland. I was just uh, writing about him a few minutes ago. He had absolutely no uh, concession to that view. Yeah, but that was exactly, that's my point. He wrote this, this was the divine right of kings. It was. Which, he was, which was absolutely contested by Catholic theologians. Who said there was well, the divine right, and the, we talked about the Salamanca school, the Victoria yeah. and Melinus, right yeah, against yeah. The, this sure Anglican idea. Sure they do. Sure and they do. If but, we look, but, I just I, Take, for example, constitutional law. Yeah. You hit a sore point. If you go back, I know this sounds a bit abstruse, but if you go back to the early medieval period and they were playing games about what would happen if, yeah. what would happen if you have to elect a pope and we have no cardinals? Well, then yeah. it's the bishops. And what if we have yeah. no bishops? Well, then it'll be the priests. Yeah. Suppose you have the, no priests. The right to elect the pope ultimately devolves to the people of Rome. Yeah, Rome, you mean? To the people Rome of the city, in the city of Rome, because Rome the, pope, is a very small place. the Pope is Pope ex officio as Bishop of Rome. Yes, he is. So that yeah. so I, all the others are just, if you like, um, they're intermediaries that take the place. But ultimately, right. the right to elect the Pope devolves to the people of the city of Rome in the same way that Aquinas would say, and before that, Gregory would say that the people have the right to kill a tyrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is true. not the same as other denominations would later say on. But in, so I'm saying there is the notion of uh, the, the of popular power, popular will, is yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah. But and I, 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 maybe I'll write a book someday or an article at least attacking this idea because <laughs> I just don't think it makes any sense. For example, in China, it's well known, and it's a, it's a cliche about Chinese politics that the people need to accept or need to need to believe that the emperor or in this case the head of the Communist Party sure. has the mandate of heaven yes and if, he, if, he, if he it's always a he almost always loses the mandate of heaven it's curtains he loses and, authority yeah. and they say it all the time and they have yes. revolutions and now they aren't as frequent as they are in Europe and we fast forward to Holland. 
Yes, Holland is my great example. Because uh, I know that for you, Holland is really interesting as... It is. It's the thing that inspires Smith. And in a sense, Holland is what comes before, maybe if we could say in this case, Holland is the thing that has to happen before 1776 can happen. Yeah. So tell well, me about Holland and what, ha- what why is Holland well, different? Why is it important? Well, it, it's the first modern economy, as, as a fr- friend of mine, a Dutch historian, expressed it. And, and it is, and it, but it's the, it, that's not quite true, because look, as you said, there's northern um, uh, uh, Northern Italy, there's Barcelona, which was always a very co- um, commercial place, very vigorous. Um, and there's uh, s- s- southeastern Germany, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are um, little spurts of, of uh, innovism. Okay. But there is, in the 17th century, uh, for, for one thing, what happens in Holland through a series of accidents is that there's no aristocracy anymore because there's no king. The aristocrats, the few there are in, in the northern low countries, um, all die uh, f- in, in, in the battle for Dutch independence. And there's no king that the Dutch will accept who can repopulate um, the aristocracy. So the, the regents, so-called, the regenta of the towns, they take over entirely, and they never view themselves as an aristocracy. They view themselves as bourgeois republics. And this is true also of the south of the lowlands too, which a couple of centuries or a century or so earlier was now, what's now, what's now Belgium. Again, had this kind of, uh, independent city attitude. <laughs> and that is the beginnings of a liberalism. Now, I, I don't want to exaggerate it because by the 18th century, the, although the Dutch were prosperous by comparison with uh, say the French or the Germans, um, and were uh, only slowly equaled by the English in their prosperity per person, um, there was still hierarchy in Holland. There's, an, uh, there's a Dutch revolution in between the American Revolution and the French Revolution that practically nobody has heard of. It's a failed revolution, but it's, a, it's, it's against the same things that the French Revolution was against, <coughs> not so much the American, namely hierarchy. Uh, and, and, but, but so... These ideas in the 17th century of a free economy, of free people allowed to try out stuff, and boy, they tried out like mad in Holland in the 17th century, is then very interestingly translated to England. They get in uh, 1689 a Dutch king. Okay. A Dutch... uh, uh, um, stock exchange, a uh, Dutch this and Dutch that. They, they, the miracle is they didn't adopt the Dutch language. So, <laughs> and, and so there, they, then there grows from this this liberal idea. I mean, it's it's my my argument is is 
is Whiggish, more or less exactly, because it's the Whigs, so-called, of mm-hmm. the uh, of uh, 1689 that are the political version of what then becomes a celebration of the values of innovism. So you're saying that there's more and more in the 18th century. The, this, the glorious, what the, the, the English call the glorious revolution mm-hmm. actually introduces into England a massive amount of inf- Dutch influence. Exactly. Which, it's, frankly, you never hear the English talking about this. Well, but, they, they, they don't, because they, up until the Glorious Revolution, the English fight three wars against the Dutch, mm. trade um, uh, mainly. Um, and that's all the English can think to do. If someone else is doing better in trade than you, let's, let's send a navy out after them. This is why New York exists, not New York. Exactly. It was part of the deal when they had, when they had and, and the, the, the Dutch very rationally gave up New York and kept uh, um, Suriname, which was a much more valuable property at the time than this crummy little place at the mouth of the Hudson. So, yeah, they... they but but then after 1689, this Dutchified England, and then eventually okay. Scotland too, starts to, um, uh, how can I say that? Well, they become more and more uh, admiring of innovation. In fact, the very word innovation, you can find this in the Oxford English Dictionary, is a bad word until the late 18th, early 19th century, and this is true of lots of commercial words, they're all kind of dangerous. The innovation, God, that'll, that'll upset things. Oh, the hierarchy will be disturbed. And then you get people like uh, our own Benjamin Franklin or Samuel Johnson, or eventually a figure as, as unlikely as uh, Jane Austen, admiring innovation. Admiring commerce. Uh, this might sound like a, a silly thing, but I'll, I'll just throw it, see what you, if you think it is. Um, Di Vittorio, who was one of the, 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 the that generation of, of thinkers from Salamanca and Coimbra, was teaching in the Sorbonne. And he was yeah. asked, to, he was engaged in a dialogue with merchants from Antwerp. Oh, uh, yeah, Antwerp. And about the nature of doing business and mercantilism and all that. Yeah, yeah. And a couple of things came out, with, with, not unique to him, but the first thing he said was, trade is a... He, he disagreed with, with um, Aristotle. He said, money is not unnatural to trade. That's right. And that trade actually... Trading with free peoples, you know, people exchanging goods and services globally, is actually a good thing for the comp for the for for humanity and sure. breeds peaceful in, rather than going to war that this is actually a good thing so That's that right. he there was a, a, a they had this moral sense that they were actually engaged which i think was a new idea that they were actually engaged in a moral process I, that, also, that's extremely important and that's true that 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 the trade stops being thought of in zero-sum terms he also being thought in uh, voltaire speaks this way Something maybe slightly more technically, 
the issue of usury became an issue, or rather yes. lending money for in, with interest. Well, it had always been an issue. And both, I think, um, the Vittoria, but also the other guy whose name I won't try and pronounce again, started talking about money in the in the in the in the in the, in that lang the language of, of time preferences. Yeah, yeah. And that you could see interest as a as a fee. He said, uh, yeah. uh, not to but the other guy says that surely if you're given the choice between money today and money in a year, yeah. you prefer yeah. to have money today, and therefore. It's not unreasonable to say that having money in a year, then you would have you pay a well, fee. See, here's, here, here's what's so strange: these ideas, these liberal ideas, as you're pointing out, were uh, common among not common isn't quite the word, but were were in the the minds of the Dominican monks of Spain. They were going around thinking this stuff in the 16th century and maybe even before. And yet it didn't compute <laughs> in Spain. It didn't have the kind of, uh, it, there wasn't the, the uptake. They won the arguments constantly, but it had absolutely no impact. Exactly. So they, there, so it, it, but whereas in Holland, there, there, there would be theoreticians who were zero-sum mercantilists, and then there were other people, like the uh, the the brothers um, whose name I'm forgetting. In the, in the middle of the 17th century, said, "No, no, um, trade is good; it's positive sum." Uh, uh, this is a hundred years before Adam Smith. And by the way, on the same point, in Japan at the time. Now we're talking about the 17th century. There are merchant schools in. In Osaka, in which statements just like the School of Salamanca or Adam Smith or the De La Corte brothers, I just remembered it, in, uh, in, in Holland, they're all saying the same thing. And again, in, in, in Japan, it, there isn't any uptick. So it suggests to me that although I, I emphasize a lot these leading thinkers and so on, and they're important, but there, in a way, there has to be something deeper going on here, not Christianity, but something else that's making the uptake work in Scotland and not so much in France and in England and not so much in Spain. And in the United States. And very much in the United States, from really the beginning. Um, the, the so if we can, if we can sort of move on to the states from it. Yeah. The narrative, shall we say, that we're a little bit we're talking about is, okay, the United States starts off as what it starts off thirteen after. As you've the North and the South, and it, it's born in slavery, so it's born in in original sin. Yeah. yeah. And. There is an expectation, it seems, amongst some of the founders, that actually slavery is a doomed institution. Smith has no time for slavery. He doesn't oh, think it's effective. It's also immoral, of course, but that there's a sense that it will, it will wither away. However, then comes the narrative we're, we're given is, then comes King Cotton. Yeah, yeah. And the South becomes this enormously important. And that... Yeah, the yeah. wealth of the United States is built 
on this. I mean, that wonderful second inauguration of Lincoln. That's right. Talks about all the treasure piled up by the, by the bonds, by the by, by by bond. bondsmen. Exactly. Well, I, I've, uh, I have an essay on this, uh, um, and uh, it's exactly on the second inaugural address, which by, parts of which are inscribed, by the way, and on the inside the Lincoln Memorial. And by the way, agree or disagree? Well, I do not agree, but, but, but I agree. If politicians spoke like that today? I know they do. They, and they, they talk about the, the 1619 project that Oy. was when the first black slave was brought to the United States. And, and King Cotton, there's a, I call it the King Cotton School of, of American history. And I have all kinds of, of objections to it. But you can, in fact, do it somewhat crudely and get to the same result. Okay. If slavery was such a great thing, why weren't the why were the Canadians just as rich as the Americans? Were if they? slavery was such a fine thing, why were were the British richer per head than the Americans, um, uh, or or equal certainly in in the nineteenth century? What what what's this? The <laughs> It, 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 it's the same argument I've made about um, South Africa and apartheid. If apartheid were so wonderful for the white population of uh, South Africa, why is it that in, you know, 19, in 1990, they had more or less the same average income as the white population of Australia? The Australians didn't have slaves. They had the Aborigines, but they, they didn't enslave them. What, 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 what? So slavery is not the heart of modern economic growth. It goes back to this whole matter of zero sum. And it's, it's related to the matter of imperialism, such as the Portuguese and the Spaniards. If enslaving Indians uh, was such a grand idea or black people in the Caribbean or in, in, in Brazil, why wasn't, why weren't, why weren't Spain and Portugal the great rich industrial powers of the world in 1800? And they were nothing like it. Uh, 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 Portugal in 1800 was as poor as Finland was in 1800. It was unspeakably poor at home. Yes. And so it's, it's just, you, although I can, I, can, I can go into the details of why it's wrong, economic and historical details of why the King Cotton School and this noble sentiment that Abraham Lincoln expressed in the second inaugural. It, it, I, I admire it from an ethical point of view, but it's wrong as economic history. To me, what's a more curious question is, I'm, I'm going on the basis that America gets rich because Yankees in Connecticut and Massachusetts open mills. Well, they do. And make stuff. Yeah, and, they do. And people in New York are very clever with finance and do lots of things with money, and people in Chicago do right. things with trade, and they trade yeah. commodities and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The South, why is the South persistently being much poorer? Well, it wasn't poor under slavery. It was quite rich. Um, uh, and but Was it, it rich? Uh, was that yeah. wealth spread out i mean obviously it wasn't spread out amongst chattel slaves but was it was it was the small farmer in the south as prosperous as the small farmer small yankee farmer yes yes in brief most 
most Southerners didn't own slaves. In the United States, slaves were very expensive. As you pointed out, the founding brothers were very nervous about slavery, and they had to the, the Northerners had to compromise with the Southerners to accomplish the United States at all. So they, they let slavery continue, but the slave trade was called to a halt in the Constitution in 1807. Mm -hmm. That was the last time that it was legal to import slaves into the United States. The United States is very far from, from the sources of the slaves, whereas Brazil, particularly the northeast of Brazil, is very close to the, to the, uh, the bite of Africa, uh, uh, um, uh, Ghana and so forth, where the slaves were coming from. So, so slaves were terribly expensive in, in, uh, in the South and got more expensive. I have read, is this true, that actually, while people have said that cotton was going to mean that slavery would continue to be, the slave economy would continue to, to work, that actually, by the time we get to the Civil War, that the kinds of capital transfers that are happening between the Upper South and the Lower South, as the slave the, uh, and the amounts of money and capital being used to purchase slaves within the what would be the Confederacy, mm -hmm. that it had actually become a system which was breaking down. No, that, that's an old argument. That's an argument of, of Southern apologists, historians. Um, I'm forgetting his name. There was a famous historian at Yale around 1900, 1910. It'll come to me. But he, the, he was from Virginia, I believe. And this was his tale. That, oh, the, 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 the Civil War was unnecessary. The, uh, the, the, the slavery was doomed. But you only have to cast your eye to Brazil to see that slavery was not doomed. Mm -hmm. It took another um, 20 or actually 25 years before slavery was abolished. And slavery was still operating in, uh, in East Africa, East Africa itself, and it's, uh, it's the, um, the, the, in, in the Middle East into the 19, well into the, well, um, I'm not quite sure of this, but I'm, th there, are, <laughs> there were slaves in the Arab world around 1900. Well, there's, there's still, there still is a slave trade in, in West Africa there today. Is. today. It's a horrible thing which we must uh, abolish. But, but it's, the, the, the actual truth is that there was an ethical change. Mm -hmm. No one thought of slave, the slave system as a deep evil until the radical uh, Protestants in England especially in the late 18th century, the, the, in particular the uh, uh, Quakers, but then also people like, like Adam Smith. And, and these people uh, actually, uh, the, 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 the great John Newton, a, a Quaker who had been a slave trader himself, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, uh, the author of uh, um, the song Amazing Grace, he turned. <laughs> and became an abolitionist from um, 1780 on, is it 80 or 82, Lord Mansfield's decision that if you set foot on the land of England, you're free. Amen. You're a slave. So there's no such thing as slavery 
conceivable in England. Of course, slavery in any real sense had long since, I mean, centuries before had been ended in England in effect. Um, but, but so <laughs> it's an ethical change that makes an ending of slavery inevitable, not economics. It's not because it ran out of land or something. Just as a technical thing, is it actually true that cotton was especially a slave crop? No, it was not at all. In fact, it was, it was cultivated before the Civil War massively by free white labor. Um, and here's an astonishing fact. Um, in 1870, five years after the end of the Civil War, the output of the South, now, now you've got freedmen. There are supposedly no longer any slaves. You haven't quite gotten back to the uh, the the apartheid of uh, of the um, uh, of Jim Crow, but in, in any case, output of cotton from the South was equal to what it was in 1860. But and this is before before the Civil War. This always so, struck me. Maybe this is a I'm missing the point here somewhere. But the, the economics of this whole argument puzzled me because why did people think it was absolutely necessary anyway that cotton would have to be grown there? If I it wasn't grown there, surely it would have been grown somewhere else. Well, it was. It was grown in, in uh, massive hundreds of years in India and in, and in, uh, in southwest China. Uh, um, they, they had cotton, cotton cloth, I mean, uh, 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 printed calicos were. Indian products, if the very word calico is from South Asia. The, the, the cotton, and then during the cotton famine, so-called, uh, of the Civil War, there were great attempts to grow long staple cotton in, 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 uh, in Egypt. And it was starting to succeed. Had it gone, had the Civil War not ended, as, as in fact, um, Lincoln was saying, if it had gone on for another 10 years, the, the raw cotton supply from Manchester would have come from Egypt. So it, it's, it's the, what, what these cotton, these king cotton historians are, is non-economists. If they don't I know they're substitutes for anything. So no. they think, so that everything's essential. And that's wrong. That's not the case. And this is not a fair question, but I will ask it anyway. Go ahead. Imagine, counterfactual, that the United States, 1776, they come to a decision that slavery will be phased out. I wish. generation, right? And it, was, it was done, by the way, in, in, after 1833 in the, in the British Empire. Yeah, and they compensated, compensated massively. And that was offered to the South. But would it have made a difference to the GDP? No. Do you think it would not have made the United States poorer? No, not at all. Um, it would, well, not at all. I mean, no, it wouldn't have made it. it, it I mean, it wouldn't have had much of an effect. Um, let's see. Had they well, if they, had they abolished it, let's suppose just on the spot. Mm -hmm. Now, they couldn't have done it in 1776 um, because there was no power to do it. But by the establishment of the, of the federal government, 
in uh, 1789 if they had compensated the slave owners and bang, it was all over, it wouldn't have made, it, what would have happened is there would have been less importation of people from Africa to some degree. So you'd have a somewhat smaller slave population, although, although the black population, although one important thing about American slavery before the Civil War is that its growth is very fast. Its natural rate of growth. Um, uh, um, this is not true in, in the Caribbean, where the slaves tend to get used up uh, because it was so easy to import fresh slaves from Africa, mm-hmm. at least before 1807, when also Britain abolished the slave trade. Right. And eventually, after the Napoleonic War, they, after they were, they, they were very busy with, um, with Napoleon for a while, but after that, they had, as you may know, a um, squadron, large squadron stationed on the coast of Africa, stopping the slave trade. They didn't ever completely succeed, but they, they, they made it much more expensive. But in, in any case, let, let me not get off the point too far. The reason the United States and Finland and Japan and China and anyone you want to name gets rich is that they allow people to innovate, to move, to try out stuff, to open a hairdressing salon when they want to, to enter an occupation when they want to. You let a liberal economy operate, as as more and more countries did um, after 1800, and you get economic growth. That's what happens to Sweden. We, we, We tend to think of Sweden as sort of a socialist economy, but it's not. It's highly capitalist, and it became rich in the late 19th century. Early in the 19th century, Sweden is a mercantilist, hierarchical economy in all kinds of ways. And then they say, wait a second, this isn't working out. And they move to free trade uh, um, and uh, free free this and free that, and zoom, up goes um, income per head in Sweden. And this has happened again and again and again. The classic case in East Asia is Hong Kong, which Mm. is about to end its uh, prosperity or its comparative prosperity. Um, Hong Kong um, was was a a crown colony um, and uh, it had English law, but it didn't have central planning. And so in 1947, is it? Hong Kong and the mainland have the same appalling income per head. 30 years later, well, actually, by now, Hong Kong's income per head is just below that of the United States. Whereas the mainland, despite its great improvement since 1978, its income per head is a third or a quarter of that of the United States or Ireland. Okay, let's let's go back to the Dutch for a moment. You're the Dutch, uh, I love the Dutch. No, you're saying this is how you get rich, yeah. and it's not about s- slaves and it's not about empires or. No. But the Dutch East Indies, the Dutch East Indies Company goes over, and then eventually it's nationalized, and the Dutch have in Indonesia and that area around Indonesia. Now yeah. I've seen estimates which say that. Between, say, 18, like Holland is in deep economic 
trouble after Belgium is hived off and other things have happened. Yeah. Between 1830 and 1870, mm-hmm. revenues from Dutch East Indies account for a third of go- Dutch government uh, income. That's right. That's a lot of that, dough. That's correct. That is correct, and it's a shameful uh, a fact that um, starts to be um, uh, starts to um, prey on the conscience of Dutch people. Uh, there's a fa- famous uh, novel called Max Havelaar in the 1850s, I think it is, or around 1860, which has somewhat the same role in, in, in Holland as uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin had in the United States. That is, it, it lays out the appalling uh, exploitation of the Indonesians. And there's no question that, that the Dutch Navy uh, and the Dutch central government were right. But understand, you know, there, there's something funny here because the Dutch had a big navy. Why did they have a big navy? They weren't an island, so their main fear of invasion was from the land, not from the sea. It's not like the the English. Um, Why did they have a navy? To protect the routes to their empire. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of circularity here. the, The same is true in Britain. That one half of the expenditure on the Royal Navy in the 19th century was devoted to, well, half of it was sort of the Channel Fleet to, 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 to prevent invasion, so to speak. But the other half was to protect the sea routes to India. And India, unlike the um, Indonesia, was not a big source of central government profit for the British. Isn't it the case, I I don't know in Holland, but in Britain, there was always a large contingent of people deeply suspicious of the idea of empire and that empire brought costs. A a colleague of mine was recently doing some research on Clive of India, an absolutely horrendous character. And he came up with, I thought, an incredible piece, which was when the... British East Indies Company was at its full extent. Yeah, yeah. It employed 25 people in an I office know. in London. That's that was it. Among them, John Stuart Mill. Really? Uh, yeah, sure. He was wow. involved. In, and, and, yeah, the, the, and in fact, the British Empire, unlike the French, didn't, was, was very light in administration. You have this guy with a gun and he shoots. He sh- he sh- he's assigned to shoot an elephant, but, but that, that's kind of all they had. And um, so, you, you know, it was, it was a place for employment uh, from people from, from, from minor public schools. I call them twits from minor public schools. And they'd have uh, gin and tonics and billiards of an evening at the club, but that, it, didn't help the, the it didn't help the help the, the British um, uh, people. A historian a friend of mine who would be kind, I would say, a, a bit of a Tory, yeah, yeah. has always argued with me. He said that first of all, you, when you talk about the empire and colonization, he says you have to be you have to say when because as an experience and as an artifact, it's 
radically different at different times. Yeah, it is. He would insist that after 1818, certainly after 1900, as an exchequer flow, oh, no, it was, it's a it negative was a flow drain. for the British. Well, absolutely. It was a drain. It was a drain. Think of, let's take an example. Take a country example, the, the, uh, the, the Boer War, mm-hmm. which was quite expensive. It was the equivalent of the American experience in Vietnam. Um, and uh, the, the, when the British finally won the war mm-hmm. at, at terrible expense in ethical standing, among other things, and, and in, in men and ships and so on. And, uh, but, the, the, but the Boers won the peace because it's from 1911 on with the, with, with the new constitution that uh, apartheid starts to get put in. You know, the whole history of South Africa in the 19th century is a struggle between the British idea that there shouldn't be slavery and the Boers' idea that there should be. Right. And, uh, finally, in 1911, the, the Boers who have been defeated win. And to so, be fair to our, fr- our, our friends, the, the English, the Brits, and you talked about what ultimately kills slavery in the United States is, an, is a change in eth- ethical sensibility. It's an idea, yeah. And it's an idea. To be fair to the Brits, they spend a hell of a lot of the 19th century and quite a bit of money, driven also, at, at least in part, by an ethical sensibility right. regarding the suppression of the, of the slave trade in Africa. And we can be cynical and skeptical about that, but I think that that would be wrong, that there were many people genuinely engaged in a moral crusade. No question about that slavery was an evil and they were going to suppress it. It was one of the great um, uh, ethical, uh, what would you call it, ethical impulses of the, of, uh, of the 19th century. The, the other, by the way, was in, in Russia, the freeing of the serfs, which was again a matter of advanced intellectuals influencing Alexander and he came to view it as a good thing to do and blah, blah, blah. Now they kind of screwed it up, but, you know, we keep screwing these things up. But, but it, it, you know, to go back to an earlier point of ours, when we were off uh, camera, um, it, it was from a sort of spiritual point of view, the intention was good. The, yes. Look, there's this claim that you hear on the left sometimes that, oh, freeing the slaves was a, was good for business or something. That's just silly. Wouldn't you like to have slaves? I sure would. Uh, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> if, I, if I didn't find it ethically obnoxious, if I was sort of Donald Trump and didn't care about ethics, then I'd like to have slaves. I mean, they could, you know, do my washing and, and uh, you know, take care of the garden and so forth and prepare meals. That'd be really neat. They, actually, they could be RAs. They could be research assistants. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think one, I just, I, I don't know if the part, but I think one thing to, an observation about the, the evolution of the idea of the morality is yeah. that if slavery and racism aren't necessarily always and inextricably inevitably entwined. I think no, there's, no. racism comes in at, at a stage it, 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 as a response exactly to justify right. a certain form of slavery. Exactly but, right. It's, 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 I, think, I, think it, I think the historiography shows that it's an offshoot of imperialism. 
I would say, I mean, there's, here's a fun fact, as my, my nephews like to say. I think that people may not know this. Everybody knows the word ciao in English. I mean, from Italian, you know, ciao, ciao, oh, darling, ciao, darling, let's do lunch. Yeah. Ciao is from, is, it comes from a Venetian word. Yeah. And it would have been, and it comes from the word ciao, which comes yeah. from the, the word for slave, no, which was you. derived from the word slav, because most, oh, yeah. the Venetian galleys were manned by slaves. And most yeah. of the slaves they got, they got from places like Ukraine and Belarus, the Slavic lands. Yeah, yeah. So they were white blonde types. Oh, and so the Venetians were famously courteous. You know, although the Italians, all Italians would say about Venetians, they care about nothing but money. But <laughs> when the Venetian would meet you, he would give you the bow and say, Schiao, as in, I am your slave. I am, I am your slave. Yeah, that's, well, that's interesting. And, and I, you know, I think I knew that, but I didn't connect it with the, uh, with the Slavic thing. And that's where it got very interesting. I'm going to just, because I'm aware that I'm taking your time here, there's just two little points. With, I wanted to come back to you use the word bourgeois I do a lot and as a positive word I do that's why I use it that way and that as a, in a sense as they say these days to reclaim the power of the I word I want to reclaim it that's exactly now, right um, you talk about bourgeois virtues yeah, values I mean. I'm a wonder and this is this is nothing to do really with what we've been talking about at all but when I, I was reading it, it occurred to me because uh, I was watching some stuff with I mentioned before uh, I'm a fan of the economist in Brown, uh, Professor Glenn Lurie, and he has had a number of chats with a lady called Professor Amy Wax. I don't know if you're aware of Professor Wax. She's she professor of law in Penn. Sorry? Is she on the left wing? She is not. Oh, she's not. She, she wrote an op-ed with a professor from University of San Diego, and it was basically um, in praise of bourgeois values. Good for her. And she was saying that one of the things that if we want to recognize, rather than giving people saying that you can succeed or in life doing X, Y, or Z, that if you actually if if you wanted to find a pattern or a map to material betterment and uplift in the United States, mm-hmm. bourgeois values, a return in inverted commas, a return to bourgeois values. So Charles Saving work. I, I'm very much in favor of this, and I just wrote an essay where it's uh, under uh, consideration right now for a collective volume on Midwestern history, where I talk about the sneering at the Midwest bourgeoisie that the what, what I call the coasties do, the 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 coasty clerisy. You're talking about the flyover states. The flyover states, as they call them, and I, I'm making exactly that point that uh, had had these Eastern, especially Eastern intellectuals, not been influenced by the class uh, struggles of Europe, mm-hmm. they would not have this attitude towards the Midwest and the flyover states. They would admire mm-hmm. Babbitt of uh, 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 of the Midwest. But they don't. They, they hate him, and it, yeah, it's foolish. It's a false position, of course, because if it weren't for the bourgeoisie, these people wouldn't have any any uh, computers. Well, the response to her article was she was widely pilloried 
for being a racist, that the obvious intent was to say that this was an attack on African-Americans and there was, I don't know, maybe a touch of the Charles Murrays about it or whatever. She was suspended for a year by the dean of her college for teaching, uh, first year undergraduates. And uh, it's been an ongoing thing. I just... Oh, you know, I did hear about this. I, I uh, from, from another, yeah, yeah, that's appalling. I'm just that curious, is, I mean, would you say that, you, that, that she's abusing the notion of bourgeois virtues? No, not at all. And, and the what would you say the bourgeois that, virtues are then? Put it that way. Well, they're the virtues. That's what I say in my first book of my, my, of my true trilogy called The Bourgeois Virtues, Ethics for an Age of Commerce, which came out in uh, 2006. And I say, look, <laughs> the standard seven virtues, the four uh, cardinal virtues of the ancient world, plus the three so-called theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, you put those together, you get seven. That's Prudence, fortitude, that's temperance. Gregory, and Gregory the Great, that's St. Thomas, and it's prudence, uh, justice, temperance, courage. Those are the four yes. for the classical world and faith, hope, and love. But that is the system I use. It's virtue ethics. Um, and there's a good deal of support for this as a kind of simple um, philosophical psychology. And then all I'm saying in that book, essentially, is that commercial society has versions of these. And it struggles with it. It thinks, oh, I'm not courageous enough. I'm not a knight or a, a you know, I'm not a soldier. Oh, I'm no good. And, and I want them to stop thinking, <laughs> I want people to stop thinking this way and stop getting mixed up about the, uh, about, about, about the priests and the knights and their being better than me and so forth. And I want them to understand that in their life as, as people in business, just as we do when we go to the shop, we're in business. Something that people don't understand. People earn profit as consumers. When, when they buy something at the, uh, at the local grocery store, they're maximizing, the, in, you could say, they're, they're getting a good deal, at least so, so they think. And so we're all in business, and business is not dirty. That's the short summary of that book. So it's not as if there's some separate realm of commercial virtues that has nothing to do with anything else. It's the virtues of, and you find it in Chinese and in Confucian thinking, and you find it in South Asia, and you find it in the coyote tales of the, of the, of the Native Americans. You used the word skills before, as the importance of skills. I'm thinking yeah. of this in the, that context, that Thomas Sowell has written widely on this and talked about the fact that he feels a fundamental mistake is made to believe that uplift is brought about through politics and yeah. through political influence. And that yeah. this is the line that has been sold, if you like, to, 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 to African-Americans. He says yeah. that, for example, the Irish were the last of the immigrant groups, the ethnic groups, to experience yeah. up economic uplift but were, by a distance, the most politically successful. Yeah, they were. And they were that, because they could speak English. Yeah, and but also they developed a lot of political skills in the 19th century in Ireland. They understood, they understood the nature of politics and how you did politics in a way. 
That's perfectly true. I, I've, I'm a great fan of Anthony Trollope's The Irish Member, you know, what the novel it is. So what's his name? I forget the guy's name, but he's an Irishman who gets into Parliament in 1868 or something. Bizarre name. He's really bizarre. I know what you mean. But he would say that, that rather, if you look at the Germans or the Japanese or any group that's successful, that what they have cultivated they, is our skills. Yeah, that's true. And they transmit them. And that wherever you go, if it's piano making in different places, Germans will do that. Um, yeah. If in the United States, uh, Jewish immigrants were, they became dominant in the garment industry, for example. Yeah, yeah. They used those that, skills. That yeah, that was true in Ireland too. Cormac Ograda, a professor of economics at um, UCD, um, has written a very interesting book about Irish Jews in the time of um, of uh, James Joyce, mm-hmm. and they they go into into the rag trade and they're they're mer- they were peddler tailors. That's right, exactly. Then they, they became became merchants. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of putting it because it's what 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 he's thinking of is the choice between work and producing things on the one hand and influence mm-hmm. on the other and indeed one can argue that the the the, um, the older hierarchy where the only source of honor was the king um, brought intelligent people uh, male or female especially male into this competition for influence yes. instead of learning things. And I think that's a disaster. And I think I, the, the place that I see it, or have seen it, was, it seems to me to be really clear, is in Italy. Yeah. In the north of Italy, they're yeah. historically, culturally successful at cultivating yeah. skills. They're very, yeah. they make things, whether it's leather or, or cloth or silk or whatever, they make things, right. they make very lovely things. They've always made things all over Italy and they're very nice things. But in the South, because of a series of circumstances, it became far more the thing to seek influence. Well, I, I, I have said, um, and I, the, the more I think about it, the more I, I, I think I'm right, that if Calabria and, and uh, Italy, especially, were independent countries, they would stop doing this. <laughs> because it's essentially a deal after the Second World War. Yes where the Christian Democrats say to the Italian self of Rome, look, you vote for us and I'll hand over some of the wealth of the North to you. And that's what's happened. And it's terribly corrupting. It's like having a a child who you keep supporting into her 30s and Mm 20s and 40s even, but then she has no incentive to work. But supporting only at this kind of basic level, never allowing well, them to fly the there, there is a kind of a myth about the South of Italy, which is that it's very poor. And yeah, it's poorer than the North, which, by the way, the, the, the area around Milan has an income equal to that of, of, of Bavaria per capita. So it's very rich. But they've both gone up since, say, 1900 or 1950, 
And the South keeps being poorer than the North, but it's still greatly developed. I mean, if you've been to, to I'm not so sure about Calabria, but I do know about, about um, Sicily. And if it were a country, it would be an upper middle income country. Numbers about the south of Italy are always to be always carry a big red label. Be careful. I suppose so. Yeah. You know, I I agree with but you. I also this. I, I think I'm really, talking about sort of looking around and looking at how the people live. They, absolutely. You know, but I think it's, to me, it's indicative that there's money there that isn't being reported. Is the fact that every other country in the Mediterranean has had to or has chosen to engage in mass tourism. Yeah. Italy and the south of Italy, which is absolutely perfect for that business, has not. That's if there was point. a deep, if there was deep, deep, if there was deep poverty there, genuine lack of development, genuine lack, then it would have happened. That's All the Greek exactly islands have, have done it. North Africa well, but, has done but, it. What, 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 the, it sort of fits in with the story of the north subsidizing the south because it, and, the, and the business of choosing between producing something, namely tourism, on the one hand, or getting subsidies from Rome on the other. And they've chosen to get the subsidies of Rome so that they don't need to, as it were, do the tourism. Whereas you, that's a very interesting observation because Spain, you know, they're nuts about tourism. And, and, and mass tourism. Greece, Greece they're yeah. mad for it. Portugal. Uh, yeah, Morocco. Portugal as well. But not, um, not, not southern Italy, whereas northern Italy is a big tourism place, but not southern. Up around, up the, around the lakes, start going back to Goethe. Of course, of course that, that's where my, I know it sounds strange, but that's where my, the father of my, my father-in-law came from. He came from the very north of Italy. He was on the Swiss border, mm -hmm. and he was blonde. <laughs> Oh, they are tall, blonde, yeah, and yeah, very good. Yeah. I'm going to finish up now, and I'm going to give you a quote. And this is only because I saw this today. I just want your reaction as a historian and an economist. Yeah. This is a statement which was made by a Canadian professor today. Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing: if whatever institution you are part of is not completely—that's in capitals—is not completely representative of the population you draw from. You can draw only two conclusions. One, bias against the underrepresented group exists. Or two, the underrepresented groups are inherently less qualified. If you think the latter is true, then that makes you a dyed-in-the-world misogynist or racist. Assuming that is not the case, then bias exists. So let's talk, stop talking about the perilous situation that people who have lived a life are privileged in, and let's get going. So, Well, you know, <laughs> as a... As a woman, I'm not entirely unsympathetic with that view. It's, it's a fact that in the Fortune 500 corporations in the United States, the largest 500 corporations in the United States, there are more people, there, the, let's take the CEOs of these mm. 500 companies. There are more people named James than women. <laughs> Okay, is, so I'm not disputing that, but I'm saying this is a, a, a serious scientist who's saying that if you do not get an exact representative sample reflective of that of the population you're drawing yeah, from, yeah, yeah, that right. is demonst that is 
a priori demonstrative but, of the existence of, of bias. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's true. Here, here's the problem. There are so many ways of slicing and, and dicing people. The, you could take people who, who uh, fold their hands this way or people who fold their hands that way. That turns out to be an inherited, inherited characteristic of people. How you cross your arms is inherited. Is your right hand, right arm above, or your left arm? Uh, ear shapes, hair color, eye okay. color. Mm -hmm. the, the place where you come from, if, if you haven't got exactly the correct number of people from Indiana, you're biased. Well, it starts to get kind of silly. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not racism and, and misogyny in, in institutions. Uh, I would say that the best solution of that is to not, and here uh, I would, um, uh, um, I, I, I think our, our earlier conversation is to the point, when the decisions about uh, who's to be on the board or who's to be hired are political, then they can then you can indulge this these interests. But if they're economic, you hire the person who you think can do the job. Listen, I, I'm aware you're under print. I want to thank you again so much and thank uh, our friends for joining us. And I'm hopeful that maybe because there are many, many things I'd like to talk about at another time. We, that you never know we shall be back i know asking I you. So. I maybe so. she may come back but again i'd like to thank you so much for your conversation i've enjoyed it enormously and i'm well, sure our, our audience will too thank I'll you and where we say or to speak of the conversation ciao ciao, ciao, ciao. <laughs> thanks a million bye bye okay.